I know many of you have been waiting for a long time to see that video, so I thought this was an appropriate Sunday to share it. Um, that video is from this summer when we went to Haiti. And uh, before we jump into that, I just want to kind of let us know where we're going this morning. Um, we're talking about Jesus and culture. If you've been here with us the last few weeks, you know that we talked about uh, Jesus and life, Jesus and treasure. Now we're looking at Jesus and culture. And uh, we're going to be spending our time in Isaiah 60. So if you have your Bibles, if you're able to pick one up in the back, um, you can open there now. But this idea of Jesus and culture is a very, very significant one. And Isaiah kind of paints the picture for us of what our future culture will look like. If you did personal worship and you were tracking through, you could tell that there's some element in Isaiah 60 of the new city or the new kingdom or Zion, our, our perfected eternal home. And so by looking at that, we're going to be able to understand not only the excitement and the joys that await us, but also the way in which we should live and interact and react to the culture we live in now, our current home. Uh, And by culture, I want to make sure we understand by culture, I mean pretty much everything, all human activities, products, um, everything that we are involved in, in a sense, practically creates our culture. So your country, your past, your neighborhood, your city, your heritage, all of these things, and even more than that, also the music you listen to, the TV you watch, the friends that you have, the family that you grew up in, the job that you take, the church you go to, all of these things create your culture that you live in and the things that have influenced you. So culture is not just high culture, it's not just pop, pop culture, but it also can go all the way down to the mundane task of mowing your grass. All of these things, all the activities that we engage in as humans are culture. And in that video, you saw us in Haiti, and essentially what we did is we went over there for, for 10 days and we immersed ourselves in a completely different culture. If you've ever been overseas, if you've been to Haiti especially, you know it's very different from America. Different food, different language different family dynamics, different lifestyle, different struggles, different joys, different things they do for leisure. All of these things are vastly different, and so it's a completely different culture. But the question is that we're going to be looking at today, what is our role as the church, as believers in culture? How are we to react to it? How are we to engage in it? How are we to initiate in culture? And when we were there in Haiti, we saw a lot of amazing things. Um, we saw children at Vacation Bible School, VBS, um, come to Jesus. We saw adults when we would go visit in their homes in different villages accept Christ. We heard stories of healing. We had an incredible time growing together as a community. I can't even you know, put that into words, the way in which God bound us together. But the personal worship at night, the time of corporate worship on top of this roof overlooking the ocean and Port-au-Prince, I mean, you can't get more beautiful than that. God did some amazing things there. But you saw in the video maybe one of the most profound things that we experienced was the smiles on the kids' faces, the love that we were able to give them, the attention. Um, you know, Every single one of them wanted them on our shoulders the entire time. It was like, We'd be like, oh my gosh, our shoulders. And they're like, and it's like, how do you say no to this? You don't. So you just put them on your shoulders and they're like, run. And you're like, okay, here we go. But I want to tell you one story while we were there. Uh, we, we had the opportunity to go to this village called Susmatla. And Susmatla is a village 
that uh, Mission of Hope, the organization that we went with, is very, very involved with. And so we got there, and the, the group that was with me of students and our translator, they, he took us, the translator, back down this path on this little kind of river into this banana grove, if you will. It's probably about 100 yards or so off the main street. So we go back there, and he wants us to, to meet this lady. He says, you know, this lady has a story to tell. She loves to tell um, anyone visiting, missionaries, uh, anyone. She tells the locals all the time. She loves to tell her story. So we go back, come up to this little concrete house, and she has a little garden. So we go around back, and she's back there, and she doesn't even know we're coming, but she's like, hey, you know, she pulls out all of her chairs, and we sit around in a circle. And she begins to tell us her story. She's an older lady. And her story goes like this. She, years, years back, was um, from a, a, a family of voodoo. Not just a family of voodoo, but she herself and her entire family were voodoo priests and priestesses. And in her backyard, there was actually a little hut that was the temple where they would make sacrifices um, and other things. She comes from that family, but by God's grace, she became a believer. And in that moment when she became a believer, she realizes that her culture had to change. The way she lived had to change. And her relationship with her family had to change. So she burnt down the temple in the back of her house, which you could imagine her family was not ecstatic about, and was claiming Christ. Now, in this time, there are six main voodoo priests and priestesses that are ruling this village. It's not just religion. It's also political in some sense. And so she claims Christ and claims a different culture now. And she faced immense backlash. Her family threatened her. There was actually, she was telling us the story of where her sister was traveling from another village to her village to kill her. And on the way to kill her, she died. So her family has outcasted her. Not only that, but her family and the villagers take all their trash and dump it in her yard every single day. And then she has to wake up and clean it up. I mean, imagine the looks that she got in the village, but yet she remained faithful. She told her story to everyone in the village. She didn't hide behind her house. She didn't stay in her little garden in her house, but she actually went out into the village and shared her faith. And whenever people would come through, she would tell them of Jesus. And by God's grace, this village now that she's living in has no more voodoo priests and priestesses. And it's actually over 80% Christian. Now, it's not this, this lady didn't do this on her own. She did not save this entire village. She did not get all these voodoo priests and priestesses out. There was plenty of other people involved. But she was a part of that. And she was not some extraordinary preacher. She was not in full-time ministry. She was just a normal lady that became a believer, realized her culture, her lifestyle, the way she talked, the way she lived had to change. She changed it. She was faithful despite the persecution and God used her to change her culture. And I think we can learn a lot from her. And I think this morning in Isaiah 60, Jesus is going to speak to us about what we should be like in terms of our culture, the way that we should be living, the way that we should be reacting. Because I think the problem is, if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, we oftentimes don't have that level of courage. We like to kind of hide behind safe walls. Instead of actually get out in the forefront of our city, of our culture, of our country, um, of our family, 
of our friends about who we are and who Jesus has made us to be. And so this morning, we're going to be diving in to Isaiah 60 to see that because Jesus tells us something that we said earlier. Jesus prays this Lord's Prayer. And he tells us this is how we're supposed to pray. So this is supposed to be our prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven, correct? So Jesus is telling us to pray that the kingdom of God, the will of God, the things of God would be done here. So what does that mean for us? How do we live that out? How do we not just pray that prayer, but how do we actually live it? Because Romans, Paul tells us that we're to be praying for a renewed mind, that God would transform our minds, not just so we have better personal worship, we have better community group, or Sunday morning is a little bit better worship, but actually so that we could use it. So we can use our changed, transformed mind to renew the city, to bring the kingdom of God, the things of God, the will of God here. So before we jump in to read Isaiah 6, you have to know a little bit of background of the book of Isaiah. If you've never read it before, the beginning half of the book is talking and announcing the destruction of Jerusalem. And then it comes in and Isaiah begins to make these these prophecies, these promises that one, a political deliverer will come and he will restore Jerusalem. His name was Cyrus. Then we hear of the very famous Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, right? A spiritual deliverer is going to come and going to rescue God's people by his suffering and his death. And then the ending where we're at now, the latter half of the book speaks about the glorification of Zion, the glorification of the kingdom of God, heaven, essentially the end of all things when God will make everything new. That's where we pick up. So turn with me in Isaiah 60 and begin to read the first few verses with me. Here it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. So if you've been tracking through personal worship and you've been going through that, and maybe you're wondering, what in the world is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about the new city. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And he begins with this discussion on the darkness that covered the earth. Essentially, we know that we live in a country full of darkness, right? A country full of pain and suffering and trials and brokenness. All of these things, darkness covers the earth. But Isaiah is saying, guess what is happening? The light is now rising, He says, arise for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The darkness is fleeing now and the light is predominant. The light is the staple. The light is the attractive force that is blinding a sense the people of God. And what happens next? Now that the light has risen and the darkness is fleeing and running away, it speaks about the sons and the daughters coming home. It says, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. 
Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nation shall come to you. So essentially, the darkness that has plagued the church, has plagued you, has plagued this country, this city, this nation, this world, is gone. The light is rising. God's glory is shining. The glorification of his city is now at hand. And the people of God, the sons and the daughters of God the King are coming home to his kingdom now. It doesn't stop there. It gets more exciting. He goes on and he says, A multitude, now this gets a little weird, a multitude of camels shall cover you. That would be kind of hard to breathe. A young camels, the young camels of Midian and Ephtha, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you and the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? From the coastlands shall come hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. So what he's talking about is these different nations and these different things coming to the kingdom. Essentially, it's almost, you can imagine, the kingdom is in one place, and these Different elements are coming. So first, the camels are coming. The camels are, are bringing frankincense and myrrh and gold and all these jewels and things, and they're bringing them into the city of God to minister to the city, to beautify the city. And then the rams are coming, and they're coming from the nomadic tribes, and they're coming on up, and they're coming to the city to serve and to beautify the city. And not only that, not only the, the surrounding areas are bringing gifts and are bringing things to serve and minister, but also... Things from the farthest extremities of the earth. The ships of Tarshish are sailing across the sea like doves. It's interesting because doves are the type of bird where when you let them out, right, they fly away and they do whatever doves do. And then they come home. And so these ships of Tarshish are being compared to doves. They, they are gone, but now they are returning. And as they return, they're carrying the scattered people of God on the ship. Talks about these ships coming home. And they're bringing the children from afar with silver and gold as well. And these things, God says, are to make the house of God beautiful. Okay, that's cool, Carter. Awesome. Well, the interesting thing about this is the camels and the rams and the ships of Tarshish are not Christian things. They are not Jewish things. They are actually pagan things. The ships of Tarshish especially were, were emblems of pride and of rebellion and of man's ingenuity and of man's power. And the camels from the trading nations were not Christian. These gifts and these things that are being brought in are actually not made by Jews. Neither are the rams. So God is speaking about something very interesting here. He's talking about things, beautiful Amazing things, useful things scattered around the world returning home. And these things are not Jewish or they're not Christian. They are actually things created by people that do not believe in the God of the Bible. 
that maybe even hate the God of the Bible. And yet this ship known for rebellion and for power and for man's ingenuity and excellence is now carrying the people of God home to the city. What is going on here? Because you notice that in this passage, you would maybe expect God to say, you know, all those things, the camels and the rams and the ships and all those things that acted like man is smart and man is excellent and man is capable of making beautiful things. Well, you know what? I'm going to destroy all those things. I'm going to throw those things into the trash and then I'm going to bring my new city. It's going to have the best ship ever. It's going to have better camels and it's going to have better rams. You would expect that to happen, right? But instead, God tells us that he takes the things of this earth, of this world, even things created by man, and he transforms them, and he beautifies them, and he brings them into the city. The ship of Tarshish that was at once a symbol of haughtiness, a symbol of power and of man's excellence, is now actually being transformed into something that is serving the kingdom of God, is carrying the people of God. So what is Isaiah telling us here? What is God wanting us to understand? It's this, that God wants us to be involved in our culture. He doesn't want us to look at our culture and to say, you know what? All those things are great, and some of these things are beautiful, and that's nice. But you know what? One day God's just going to explode all of them because they're all made by humans, and so they're automatically horrible, and he's going to give us better things. But it actually, God tells us that he doesn't destroy them. He actually transforms them. The things that marked them with sin and with brokenness and with darkness are gone, and light has now come and has transformed these things and their uses. And now, instead of being opposed to the kingdom of God, they are actually beautifying the city. They are now actually serving the people of God. You see here, God is calling us to be people that don't stiff arm culture and say, well, that's not Christian. That's not good. That's not made by God. So I'm not going to be involved in it. But he's also not telling us just to embrace everything. He's telling us to embrace culture but also to be people that look to restore culture just as God does. He's not saying, you know what? I'm going to redeem everything. I'm going to redeem um, pornography and genocide and rape and war and poverty. Actually, God's going to do away with those things. In Revelation, he tells us that the things that brought tears and pain and sorrow, those things will be removed. But he does take things that are beautiful, that are useful, that man has created and has been a part of human culture, and he restores them. He changes their use. He changes what they are used for now in the city. You see, Isaiah or Jeremiah in chapter 29 tells us this. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. See, Jeremiah is telling the people to go into the city where God has sent them and to pray for the city, to pray for its welfare, to be involved in the city, and they will find their welfare there. 
That's an amazing command that we are to be people that work for the shalom or the peace of the city. We are to be people that are looking to be involved in culture. Agents of redemption and restoration, not people that just stiff arm it away and hide behind closed walls. And Isaiah expounds upon this. He goes on now in verse 10 and he follows. He says, foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you for in my wrath I struck you. But in my favor, I had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night, they shall not be shut. The people may, be, may bring to you the wealth of the nations and their kings led in procession. For the nations and kingdom, they will not serve you, that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the holy Israel. You see, this place now is a place where the gates can be left open because there, there is no more pain. There is no more war. There is no more strife. There is no more fear of persecution and affliction. The lady from Haiti does not have to be fearful now that she is going to be murdered by her own family because now in the kingdom of God, the gates can be left open because there is no animosity anymore. We actually live together now and all the things of the world are brought into the kingdom of God. The things that are redeemed and are useful are brought in to beautify the city, to make the, the place where God puts his feet beautiful, to serve and to minister to the people of God living in there. And you see here, there's some element that we're not going to get into because it could be a very, very long conversation of kings and of those who've afflicted you coming and ministering or processing in some sense at the city. And I think the important thing to take from that is that, yes, God is a God that is going to do away with sin and its effects. And there will be a judgment placed upon those who have rebelled against him and Satan himself. But yet we see here that there is an element of our interaction with them. That even though the evil ways of the world and the darkness of the world are going to be turned into light, the city is going to be made beautiful and the things of this world will be transformed and brought into it. So the question becomes, what is our reaction and our interaction with those that are not in this room? Those that are making the ships of Tarshish right now. Those that run and control the camels of Midian or the rams. What is our reaction to those people? Because if God is going to take those things that are made, he's going to transform them and redeem them then what is our interaction with them? Do we just say, that's great, keep making that, but I'm going to stay over here? Or do we come alongside them? Do we serve with them? Because I think there's an advocacy here for us to be involved with non-Christians, people not in this room, people making beautiful things, looking to restore culture, even though they may not have the same set of beliefs that we do, if they have the same vision and the same mission, we can come alongside them. This is why we are called to serve alongside people in government adoption agencies, in homeless initiatives, 
and clean water initiatives in third world countries and beach cleanup and parks and recreation and better business associations and art associations. All of these things that are seeking to restore and to redeem and to beautify the city and the culture. We can do it with other people, even if they don't have the same set of beliefs with us. You know, I know that for me, you know, when I hear that, I think, okay, well, you know, isn't Jesus really, really big on evangelism? The Great Commission, go out to all the nations and tell them, tell them about Jesus and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what we're supposed to do above and beyond everything else? Yes. But the question is, how do you do that? Do we look to restore people's souls care for people's souls and their relationship to God by just walking out, telling them about Jesus, and then going and running and hiding in our house? Or are we actually more effective in sharing the gospel and leading people to Christ when we are distinct from culture, but yet engaged in culture? That's probably actually where we're most effective. When we are showing that we are not like culture in the way that we think and the way that we live and what we value as beautiful and artistic and redeemable, but yet we are still engaged in culture looking to be agents of redemption and of change, both with our mouth and with our our lives and the way that we live. That is the way that we are actually effective. And Isaiah continues on here and he gives us the last few pictures of this kingdom, and it really informs us. He says, whereas you have been forsaken and hated, in verse 15, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. You see, this city is not only beautiful and is not only has elements that are there to serve and to minister to you, but it's massive. And it's for your joy. It's a city of community, of growth, of fresh materials and beautiful things for you to interact with. I'm sorry if you thought that heaven or the kingdom of God was going to be you sitting up on clouds with a golden harp and a smile so big it looks like you've had 14 espressos. That's not heaven. I'm not going to tell you that I know exactly what heaven is. So don't ask me, you know, if you can go surfing in heaven or if you can, um, you know, fly because you've always wanted to fly. You can jump off buildings and fly. I don't know. But I do know that God gives us images, images of what it will be like, not only for us to get excited about our future home, but to inform us on how we are to live in our current home because God is looking to bring his kingdom and his will here. Not in some cloud world, but here. And so often we are so consumed in the terms of the kingdom of God in heaven with me and mine, right? Will my dog be there? There are going to be animals there. Scripture tells us that. Um, but don't ask me if your dog's there. I don't know. Um, can I fly? Can I surf? 
Can I drive cars really fast with no speed limit? But Isaiah here is not concerned at all with me and mine, is he? He's actually concerned with them and theirs. Us corporately. He's concerned with corporate structures, cultural patterns, cultural products. This is his concern here. And so what is to be our concern? What is to be our business in the way that we live our lives in this city where God is looking to bring his kingdom and his will to? Is it to be for me and mine? Or is it to be for them and theirs? Because Isaiah paints this picture for us of what we are to live for. What we are to strive after. See, God is in the business of reshaping, reorienting, redeeming, repurposing. He takes the ships of Tarshish and he changes their use. He takes the rams. He takes the camels. He actually takes the the trees of Lebanon. This is a beautiful image. I, I get excited about this. He takes the trees of Lebanon, not just the trunk, not just the branch. It says the entire thing. The trees of Lebanon were known to me the most beautiful trees in all the world. He takes the trees, all of them, out of the ground, and it says that they will adorn the sanctuary of God. So I like to picture maybe the temple of God with massive, huge, beautiful trees hanging almost like lights. It's a pretty cool image. This is the idea, this is the concept, the image that that he is giving us in terms of our future destination. But because God is a creator, because God is a reshaper, a reorienter, one that takes things and repurposes them, then isn't that what we're supposed to be? If we're made in God's image, been redeemed by Christ to be like Christ, then who are we to be? What is our reaction to culture? Because you see money, for instance, is not something that we should worship and covet, but rather something that we should use for restoration and redemption. Right? Music, TV, film. It's not something that we have to shun altogether unless it's Christian. But yet with discernment, And being distinct from culture by saying things that are impure and wicked in content and message we will not involve ourselves in. But you know what? Things that are beautiful and comedic and joyful and have redemptive messages, even if they're not made by a Christian director or it's not a Christian artist, I can still engage with it. I can still be a part of it. You don't have to eat testaments from the Christian bookstore if you want to make your breast smell better. You can eat Altoids. That's okay. You don't have to wear only Christian t-shirts. Ralph Lauren is okay. Right? What about things like dancing and parties? Can a Christian go to a party? Can a Christian dance? Yeah, I think he can. He or she can most definitely. You know why? Because our God is a God of celebration. He's a God of joy. He's actually a God of dancing. Now, should we be mindful of the environments and the atmosphere that we put ourselves in? Of course. But should we not have the best parties? We should. Should we not be the best dancers? Maybe not the best moves, but a lot of big old smiles on our face when we do it. See, God is calling us to be like him, to be someone that is not a creator, is a creator, but not a destroyer. And praise God that he is, right? Because if God was a God that said, you know what, when something's evil and sinful and something's not Christian, then I'm just going to destroy it. You know how many of us would be in this room? Zero. But God looked at us and he said, you know what? You ignored me. You rejected me. 
You hated me. You lived totally opposite of me. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to restore you. I'm going to redeem you. And you're not going to be able to do anything about it. I'm actually going to send myself, Jesus, in the flesh to die for you. And through his death and his resurrection, you can be restored. You can be redeemed. You can be reoriented. You can be repurposed. That is who our God is. That is the image that we bear. And so the question is, what is our position? Who are we to be? Because we know that we're not going to single-handedly build the kingdom of God, just like the, the lady in Haiti that forsook voodoo and lived in her city and in her community as a believer and told her story. She's not going to sit there and say, I changed this city all by myself. But she knows that she was a part of it. She participated in it because her God is a God that seeks restoration. And we're to be the same way. People that seek restoration. People that look to make change. Raise your hand if you've been to one of those new yogurt places. You know, the ones where you get like the cup. Those are awesome, by the way. The first time I did it, it was like $15 for yogurt. It's like, shoo, yeah. Then I put it on, it's like $20,000. I thought it was like one size fits all. No, it's weight. Okay, awesome. But if you've been to one of those things, they're awesome because, you know, once you learn how it works, you get the cup and then you have like a million choices, which is, you know, always hard to do, especially I get the same two things every single time. So, you know, I fill it up and then you get to the section where you can get the toppings. They have those weird little like balls with like juice in them. I don't know who gets those. If you get those, don't tell me. I'll judge you. Um and then like, you know, rainbow sprinkles, which everyone should do, and Oreos and things. And then my yogurt my, is like little kid's yogurt. Um, but I love those places. And here's the idea. God has created the world. It is his. Everything in it is his. You are his. This church is his. This city is his. The buildings are his. The art is his. The music, everything is his. He has the cup. The cup is his. He owns it. He fits the bill. At the end of the day, if you're one of those people that puts the little weird juice balls and fruit in your yogurt, he will remove them because God knows what's up. But you don't just sit there and wait for God to kind of put the yogurt together and put all the right toppings and to say, look, here's the kingdom of God. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Now come on in. You don't just stand there passively hiding back saying, I'm just going to wait. Instead, you are to be the person helping to participate in filling the cup. You are to be engaged in culture, seeking to restore culture, looking to bring different flavors into it. And you know what? God will restore and redeem any decisions or choices that we make wrongly. But we don't stand back. We actually engage in. And so my prayer as we've read this and we look at the last section here where Isaiah closes is that we would be people that don't hide behind safe walls, that in terms of culture, we don't remain as pacifists, but instead we should be the people at the forefront of art and music and TV and film and business practices and family dynamics and helping the hurting and the needy, that should be us. Not the government, not other organizations that are doing it. You just go do it. I'll just kind of continue what I've always been doing. Instead, we should be there. Because that's our call as believers to bear God's image here in this city now. 
Isaiah ends on verse 22 and he says this, the least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord and it's time I will hasten it. You know, we talked about last week in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of God is like this little mustard seed, right? Tiniest, you can barely notice it. But at one day, it will be this massive, beautiful tree. It grows and it grows and it grows. And here Isaiah tells us that the least one, the smallest one, shall become a clan. The smallest one, a mighty nation. And that the Lord in his time will hasten it. Well, yes, God will do that. He is the one that is building and creating and bringing his kingdom. But we are to be involved in it now. We are to pray the prayer, Lord, your kingdom done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And not just sit back and watch it, but begin to engage in it. Because this city and this culture is God's. We don't have to give it over to Satan just to do what he wants. We don't have to say, you know, God, you know, just going to remain back, but we can actually be involved in it. And that's actually our call. So with that, let me pray for us.